How many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Raise your hand. Yeah. Some have said it's one of the best, if not the best, war movies ever made. That movie takes you back to 1944, 75 years ago. And the film's big idea is the incredible cost of liberation, the bloody, weighty cost of the liberation of France. For nearly three hours in that movie, it hammers home two questions. The first question is, is the liberation of France worth the tens of thousands of dead allied soldiers' bodies? And the second question is, is saving Private Ryan worth the death of those who are tasked to rescue him and save him? The movie really does scream to you and I, liberation comes at a significant and violent cost. It is sort of, it is the sort of terrible glory Christians see when we look back at the cross. Later in the movie, Captain Miller has been shot and his last dying words to Private Ryan are, earn this, earn it. In other words, he is saying, make sure my life, make sure my death trying to save you was worth it. Don't mess it up. As I process those words, I was thanking God that those were not the last dying words of Christ on the cross. Instead, Jesus offered words that should release us from any sense that we must somehow contribute to our own liberation, our own salvation. Because he used the words, it is what? Finished. Our passage this morning tells you and I we cannot earn it or contribute to our own liberation. No one can. And those that think they can contribute, this text says, ends up missing out on their own liberation or salvation. They think they're good enough to somehow contribute. Their, their moralistic and legalistic lens divides the world into good people and bad people. But this gospel-infused text from the scripture this morning tells us that the gospel divides the world into bad people and Jesus. Two categories. No such thing as good and decent people. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, what keeps us from knowing God more deeply is not the badness we know we have, but rather the goodness we think we have. There's nothing like a great home-cooked meal this morning, as we're going to see, between a Pharisee, a prostitute, and God, Jesus, the God-man. How about that for company? So look with me, if you would. Luke 7, starting in verse 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, Simon, gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go and live in peace. So here we have a Pharisee, a prostitute, and Jesus eating eating dinner together, eating a meal together. And the Pharisee invites Jesus to a meal in his home. We know that Jesus at this time, his popularity was growing. He has said many controversial things. And so what's happening here, Dr. Bach, one of the world's foremost experts on the book of Luke, tells us that Jesus is still being studied by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. So it probably happened like this, that the Pharisaical Association said to Simon the Pharisee, invite this guy over, ask some of our other Pharisees to come, and let's check this guy out. And so I, what I love about this passage is Jesus actually says yes. Now look, Jesus, I'm not like Jesus in a lot of ways, and I'm growing, but I'm like Jesus in this way. I'll eat with anybody, Right? You invite me, I don't care who it is. Jesus, throughout the scripture, see him in saying yes to invitations to eat with tax collectors, with the low life of the society, and even those who will end up hating him more than anyone and ultimately killing him. Jesus says, yes, I'm all in. Now, now it says they're reclining at the table. We need a picture for that. It's different than uh, what you and I do in terms of sitting. Sorry, I couldn't see your face there for the deal, your beautiful face. Um, uh, it's different. They didn't sit at a table. What they would do is come in as a short table, and they'd be like couches and pillows around it, and they would actually lean on their left elbow as they reclined, and their feet would be away from the table. Now, I thought about actually doing that for you. Then I thought, oh, man, I could get up, right? But their feet in that day were, they were nasty, Okay. They didn't have socks, they didn't have showers, and they walked on dirty roads with sandals, and so that's how they kept their feet away from the food. And so here they are in that moment, and then verse 37 says, when she learned Jesus was there, who is she? 
She says to us, she is a woman of the city and describes her as a sinner. When you put those two phrases together, it tells us who she was, that she was known in the city as a prostitute and an adulteress. She's well known for her sexual sin. Now, it doesn't tell us how she became a prostitute. You and I know that women just don't decide to become a prostitute for no reason. There's a larger story. There's always a larger story about why she or any of us would become entangled in sexual darkness or any kind of deep, addictive sin. Tells us, though, when she learned, that phrase tells us she knew who Jesus was. She had had a previous encounter with Jesus. She had heard Jesus' teaching. She, she, she had responded to him, verse 50 says, by faith, by placing her trust in who Jesus was as the God-man come to relieve the sins or take away the sins of the world. So when she learned he was there, she had already, already encountered him and she knew based on his teaching and how he had responded to her, how he would respond to her here. So she walks in with a, with a heart of gratitude toward him that is driving her to show up and to express her love for him. Think about it. This woman showing up to this home, open doors, open windows in the Mideast. And it, look, it wasn't uncommon if theological uh, Pharisees sat around for a dinner for others to join, not to eat, but to sit around the table and listen. So just someone walking in wasn't unnormal. But for this woman, the town prostitute, to show up at this dinner was so courageous. All eyes on her. The chit-chat turned to silence. And there's no doubt that Simon the Pharisee had never had this kind of woman in his home. Verse 38 she knew exactly who Jesus was. She went straight to him. She stood behind him. And as you can imagine, she is overcome with emotion. All that she was feeling just, just welling up. We get this picture just welling up in her until she burst out sobbing, weeping, gut-wrenching tears. Have you ever cried like that? Most of us have. I have. It's ugly. <laughs> it's ugly crying, right? But it's beautiful crying. Tears start to make spots on his dust-covered feet like raindrops. And she takes down her hair and begins to wipe his feet. Notice in our text, Jesus does not stop her. He is not repulsed by those who are in sexual sin. Reminds me of when Jesus said, come to me all who are weary, <laughs> all who are heavy laden, 
all who are tired of your sin, come to me. I am a friend of sinners. As I said, she takes her hair down to wipe his feet and then anoints his feet with this expensive perfume she had brought with her. She's locked on to Jesus, the one who had forgiven her. And here's the deal. She is oblivious to the stares of the others. She's oblivious to the, to the judgmental hearts of others, to the sneers and to the disgust of others. And then just imagine with me the joy that Jesus felt. He had come to rescue and redeem sinners and this woman is responding to that rescuing and redeeming right in front of everyone. Jesus knows everything she has done. He tells her later in verse 47, her sins are many. He sees exactly her for what she is and yet welcomes her to find the love she has been finding in others or trying to find in others, find it in him. And then it says, Simon said to himself, if Jesus is really a prophet, he would know who this woman is touching him. Now, I'm not sure it's very Christian to call someone dumb in a sermon, but do I have your permission to do that? Answers, yes, Jeff. Monty's not here. We can do that while he's gone. But when I first read that, I thought, what a dumb statement by Simon. Look, it is obvious she's a prostitute. Everyone knew it. They knew it before she walked in. They knew who she was. And then she walked in. They knew who that is. Simon is literally saying, if he were a prophet, but he's not. Simon the Pharisee is disgusted that Jesus would allow this sinful woman to touch him. And to him, this is proof positive that he's not a man of God. This is proof positive that he's not a prophet. Simon's problem can certainly be our problem. He can see her sin clearly, but he can't see his own. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He says, the judgmental heart owns a hundred microscopes and no mirrors. Simon owned a hundred microscopes and had no mirrors. Jesus is not only a prophet, we know he's much more than a prophet. And even though Jesus didn't hear what Simon said because Simon didn't say anything, Simon just thought thoughts. Jesus knew what he said because Jesus is God and God only can do that. And here's what happens here. Jesus said, yo, Simon, I need to say something to you. Now, when I read that in my mind, I went Scooby-Doo. Ruh-roh, <laughs> right? Jesus now tells us a story, a parable. Roman number two in your note says, a big sinner and a little sinner with a question mark. I did that on purpose because, because we need to ask the question. See, we need to ask the question, is Jesus really teaching in this parable that they are big sinners and little sinners? So the parable goes like this. Two men who are both in debt, one who owes 
two months' wages, 50 denarii, and one who owes two years' wages, 500 denarii, and both have no means to pay back the bank or the money lender. And the banker, it says, canceled both their debts. The word is literally graciously forgave their debt. So out of an act of grace, the banker wipes away the debt. And then Jesus, in verse 42, asks the question, which man, to Simon, Simon, which man will love the banker more? Simon responds, I assume the one who had the bigger debt. Now, at this point, I'm asking investigative questions based on the text. One question is, is Simon aware that the narrative is not moving in his favor at this point? (laughs) Or, believing the best, is he starting to get it? Is he starting to get Jesus' point to him? Or is he just sensing that in some weird way he's being confronted about something, something wrong, something he doesn't get but he's not aware of it. I think the latter, the text indicates that he doesn't get it, that no one gets it except the woman. Here's the deal. Here's why. It's so hard for a Pharisee to see clearly. I could say it this way. It's so hard for a modern day Pharisee in the church to see clearly. And Jesus has already told us why back in Luke 6. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Spiritual Pharisees have a blindness caused by their own sense of superiority and the forgetfulness of the God's grace to them. Luther, Martin Luther, put it this way. We are all born legalists, but are made into Pharisees. We are all born legalists, but we're made into Pharisees. We are born resisting the idea of grace because of the awful things grace says about us. What does grace say about us? Grace grace says we're sinful, lost, blind, needy. You continue with those adjectives. Pharisees fear grace, but they have coded their fear in knowledge, morality, and religion. They look clean on the outside and alive while all is dying on the insides. Someone has put it this way, that Pharisees are informed legalists. (laughs) See, we're born legalists, but as we know the Bible more, we know more about God That's the danger zone of becoming a Pharisee. And obviously, it's very possible even to be a gospel-centered Pharisee. How? They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from God, Mark 7. What they know about God is disconnected from how they feel about him. Don't get me wrong, okay? Pharisees are (laughs) well-meaning, but they lack grace and yet are full of hypocrisy. They know what to say, but do not do what they say. Take giving, for example. We talked about it this morning. They can teach on giving, but if you looked at what they gave, they don't give. 
and they refuse to deal with this duplicity in their own lives. Let me say that again. They refuse to recognize, to admit, to see, to work on, to ask for help, to be equipped in. They, they refuse. And that refusal is saying, I will not be needy. I refuse to deal with the duplicity in my life. Add to that how happy and free they are to point out the sin or even perceive sin in others, but they're even happier to excuse the sin in their own life. Folks, I want to tell us, I'm telling me, if we want to grow to maturity in Christ, we must engage those truths. We're born legalists, but we're made Pharisees. Back to the story. Jesus says, you've answered correctly to Simon. The banker represents God in the parable. The 50 denarii guy represents the Pharisee and the 500 denarii guy represents the sinful woman. So here's what Jesus is doing. He is trying so hard to show Simon the truth of Luke 5.31. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Jesus is trying to drive that point home to Simon. The point is there's no one who's not sick. There's no one who does not need the gracious help and touch of the great physician. No one. To restate it, Jesus is trying to say, I came for those who realize, who recognize, who know they are sick in need of a spiritual doctor. But here's the problem. Simon is interpreting the parable as if there are big sinners and little sinners. He's like, yeah, she should be more thankful because she was forgiven more. I'm not like her. No. Jesus is saying to Simon, you don't love me like she loves me because you, from a human perspective, think there's a difference between her sin and your sin. The truth is, Simon, that's why I told you the parable, but you're not getting it. The truth is, both of you are in desperate situation before God. Both of you have the inability to pay off your debt of sin. Yes, she's a prostitute, but spiritually speaking, she's so much smarter than you, Simon. There's only a perfect holy God and very big sinners. And it is the person who sees this gap clearly between a holy God and their sin that will love Jesus much. The more clearly one sees this gap, the more they love Jesus. Jesus is teaching. The more foggy this gap is, the less they love Jesus. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, too many... Too many think lightly of their sin and therefore think lightly of their Savior. There are no little rebels. You and I are much worse than we think we are. And it's why the gospel 
is offensive to some. How dare you put me in the same category as a woman like her? Verse 44. Jesus now looks at the woman while speaking to Simon and says, Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus, is, Jesus knows Simon has laid eyes on this woman. But Jesus is saying here, have you been paying attention to what this woman is doing and why she is doing it? He gives three things. She washed my feet and you did not. In that culture, when a guest came to your home, either you or one of your servants would wash their feet. Jesus says, you didn't do that. She's more courteous to me than you. Then he says, she kissed me, but you did not. Again, in that culture, there was a greeting with a kiss on each side of the cheek in the Mideast, which says, I respect you. Jesus says, she kissed me. She didn't stop kissing me. You didn't give me one kiss. She's way more respectful than you are. And then thirdly, Jesus says, she took expensive perfume and anointed me in an act of worship. And you didn't even take the cheapest thing in your pantry, olive oil. Hundreds of gallons, tens of thousands of gallons of olive oil. If anyone in the Mideast have something in their pantry, it was going to be cheap olive oil. You didn't even take olive oil and run it through my hair to refresh me from my trip. And she spent expensive perfume on me. She is way more loving than you. She humbly served me, Simon. You didn't. She profusely showed affection toward me, Simon. You didn't. And she willingly sacrificed for me, and you didn't. So here Simon is confronted, and now Jesus says something that is going to bring the house down with anger and this attitude of how dare he. Look at verse 47 under he's a great savior. Jesus now says, I tell you her sins, which are many. Man, Jesus always tells the truth, doesn't he? Like he, he, didn't, he didn't throw her sins under the rug. He didn't act like they weren't there. He didn't do that with our stuff either. He says, Jeff, his sins are many. Although her sins of many, they are forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean, removed as far as the east from the west. Only God can forgive sins. And that room of theologians, those Pharisees, <laughs> that lit them up. It is ultimately what will call them or make them call for the death of Jesus. Jesus is saying here, no matter how great your sins, God's grace is greater. And please don't think this woman is forgiven because she loved much. Don't, don't make that mistake. She is forgiven, verse 50 tells us, because she placed her trust and faith in Jesus, who was more than a prophet, 
who was God in the flesh, who will shed his blood for her forgiveness. This woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. This woman loves much because she knows she's been forgiven much. But Jesus makes the point, but who thinks they have been forgiven little will love Jesus little. One of the most crucial things that you and I can do individually and corporately as a church, and this, I care for the big church, but I am responsible in a spiritual sense for this church. One of the great things we can do that we need to get, that I need to get, is this phrase, forgiven much, love much. Forgiven little, love little. When you and I are in this spiritual season where we really know, we're sensing, we're not chasing after Christ, we're not loving Christ well, we're not following him well, you can go back to you have forgotten how much you've been forgiven if you know Christ. You get that right, everything else follows. Jesus is a great savior only to those who see their great sin. Jesus is a great savior to those who have been forgiven greatly. Jesus is a great savior who know they have a great need. Jesus is a great savior to those whose own sins grieve them greater than the sins of others grieving them. Jesus is a great savior, not for those who give great effort, but for very bad people who have finally given up and come to him. There's five practical takeaways I want to wrap up with this morning. The first is Jesus is a great savior for the person who is sexually hurting. What is Jesus like with the sexually hurting? And folks who are scarred by their own sexual past or other sexual sin against them. If we knew everyone's story, think about it. In this room, we'd be shocked to know how most in this room of carrying around sexual shame and pain and hurt. We can feel dirty, damaged, unworthy, depressed, and confused because of our sexual sin. And this toxic shame plays itself out spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. None of this should surprise us because our sexual, sexuality is such a tender part of who we are. When it gets violated by us or someone else, it does have profound effects. Pornography, Adultery, prostitution, rape, abuse, same-sex attraction, and sex before marriage. Outside of God's design, the shame from these produces lies, and these lies produce in you a way of seeing yourself as unforgivable. In a way of being that says, I can't change. Add to this what others would think if they knew 
So we isolate and we get even worse. I think the church needs to be the safest place on earth, but never a comfortable place. Jesus welcomes this sexual, sinful woman. He allows her to come close to him. He encourages her socks off by publicly applauding her treatment of him. Your sexual sin does not scare Jesus away. Jesus does not disqualify you based on how many sexual sins you've partaken in. You no longer have to look for love in all the wrong places, he says, because I have first loved you. Jesus is a great savior to the sexually hurting. Jesus is a great savior for the person who recognizes their sin. Sin, first and foremost, is an issue of the heart. Your life on the outside may be G-rated, but all of us fail to acknowledge God as God and we make ourselves out to be God. Turning away from his rightful authority and in our hearts we say, I can run my own life. We talked about it this morning. What did Peter say in Luke 5? He says, for I am a sinful man. And at that very moment of admission and confession, Jesus' next words to Peter are, get up, I'm going to use you to fish for other men. At that point, you become usable. That was Simon's problem. He could not admit he was a sinner. Jesus is a great savior for the person who connects the dots between forgiveness and love. Forgiven much, loves much. J.C. Ryle put it this way, forgiveness is the lifeblood of love for Christ. Jesus is a great savior for the person who is unashamed of their love for Jesus. I love this. We can learn from this sinful woman, can we not? She is an example to us. She plays, I think, a unique role in Scripture. We saw that she's motivated by gratitude, expressed her gratitude, and she is unashamed in the expression of her gratitude. She puts aside, if you think about it, the fear of man to openly worship Jesus in a room of strangers that is filled with judgment of her. She is like a honey badger. You know what honey badger is? Honey badger don't care. (laughs) She reminds me of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Where it tells us he was dancing in the street as the Ark of the Covenant came back into the city. And it says he was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And as he got back home, his wife said to him, you are disgusting. That is not behavior of the king. You've embarrassed me. and You've embarrassed yourself as the king. David responds to his wife. I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. This woman, she didn't care. She expressed her love for Jesus in worship. And then lastly, for the person who wants peace. We all want peace. And there's no satisfaction in sin. 
When we hide our sin, we deny our sin, look, (laughs) we learn over and over it wasn't worth it. There's no peace. Jesus said to this woman, go and live in peace. Peace is in a person and I am in you. Go and walk with me. Go and experience me. And you don't have to live like you have lived in the past. I want to ask you this morning to take a minute. Chris, you are now welcome to play. (laughs) To ask the question, so what? Man, there's so much in this text. Here's what I want to say to you. If you're a great sinner, grace is greater. Grace will change you. If you're a Pharisee, Grace is greater. Grace will change you. Wherever you're at this morning, take a minute to ask the question, so what?